Okay, we are here with Paul Martino on Dr. D's Social Network. Paul, glad to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. You know, I love talking to people in academia. It was, uh, I used to be in it myself a very long time ago. Um, and I, I kind of remember the whole thing. I was teacher in career college and universities myself many moons ago. But I'm curious about what you're up to these days. And uh, I saw what you reached out to me about. And I was like, oh, this is interesting stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's uh, do a lot of things. I mean, I'm still in academia. I'm still teaching. And uh, I'm, I'm a dean also. So that's a new thing. But that's, yeah. a, you know, sort of the, the main gig, side gig. Yeah. But uh, we wrote a book. And uh, during the pandemic, we my colleagues and I, Nate Gerowitz and Justin Miller, wrote a book titled um, Letters to Our Younger Selves, a Combat Manual for, for uh, Mindful Living. And we thought, you know, maybe coming out of this, people might be able to use some of this information. Um, and it kept us busy. And it, it was a fantastic endeavor. We enjoyed ourselves. It kept us positive. Um, it's kind of the gift that keeps giving. So that's sort of the, the big thing we've done recently uh, is this book. How did it, well, tell me a little bit about like letters to your younger self. Like yeah. how did this come about? Yeah, so when, without telling you my age, um, <laughs> when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, I, we were talking about, so we went into the pandemic and uh, Nate is a former student of mine and he and I had kept in touch and Justin and I worked together and at Carthage College and we were talking about doing a project together. So Nate and I were talking about, you know, we should do a project together. And I thought, yeah, yeah, we should do something. And then Justin and I were talking about, let's do a project together. And I thought, why not bring these two great guys together? And it seems like we're going to be locked down here for a while. How long? We don't know. So let's, let's do something positive for ourselves. And it, it sort of, it was, um, it was kind of like counseling for us too, right? Because we got together once a week and we were writing independently. And I thought, okay, well, what do we do? We, we talked about, well, let's write a book. And, and as we started thinking about, well, what kind of a book would we write? We'd want to, you know, we, we sort of want to have a bunch of different criteria. We'd want it to be short, easy to read, grow through struggle, ordinary common experiences, helpful advice and applicable. And I thought, you know, I used to really like getting letters when I was a kid, hmm. snail mail, paper. And so I ran that by Justin and, and Nate, and they're like, that's cool. But why don't we write them to our younger selves, right? What would we tell ourselves if we knew what we knew now, right? What we know now, what right. would we tell our younger selves? And we were, you know, at that point, we we're thinking, well, you know, if when I was 18, 20 years old, I, I wish I would have known a bunch of stuff. And that's kind of how it all got started. So I bet this had to be a very interesting exercise in the sense of what would you tell your younger self? So what are some things you, uh, if you feel comfortable sharing, yeah. you would yeah. tell, you, you would write to your younger self? Yeah. So each one, so we each wrote a bunch of letters to ourselves. Um, and it's Nate, uh, Justin wrote the first date. Nate wrote the last, the middle nine, and then I wrote the next nine, and then we, we wrote a letter together. 
And um, I, we each kind of picked a theme, right? So my parents are both immigrants. And so I thought, well, you know, let me give it from the, the kind of a, a I, was, I was born in the US, so I'm not immigrant, but my parents are both immigrants. So I thought, well, let me take that theme, right? Cause that'll be interesting. Let me explore that side yeah. of, of who I am. And so I, I took this whole, well, what would the successful child and immigrant tell me? And so things like, for instance, uh, that was sort of the first letter. It's the intro, right? Letters, what would a successful? Um, I, I start real basic stuff like, and it sounds sort of ridiculous to say this, but the, the first one after that letter is make more good decisions than bad decisions. Yeah. Which, which sounds intuitively obvious, right? Like if you it make does. more, I mean, <laughs> yeah. why would you need to say this? Why? Yeah. And, well, well, and, and what we see, what we're, what we've been seeing um, in, in at the university level, college level, is that a lot of the things that I wrote, that Nate wrote, that Justin wrote, don't seem to be common or obvious anymore. And so mm-hmm. I think people overlook. So, for instance, when we're in the classroom, when I'm in the classroom, and I'm I'm using the Socratic method, and I'm asking students questions, right? It seems that, and I'm in the sciences, so I'm a physiologist. I uh-huh. teach anatomy, physiology, biology. And I'll ask a question that is simple. And the intention is to get a simple answer. And more often than not, the students go to the most complicated, detailed answer <laughs> that they could give me. I always say, no, not that piece, the big picture, right? And so, so after doing this for more than a decade, you start to pick up on trends. I'm like, why are they going to the most complicated, detailed answer? Yeah. And right. And so, making good decisions and bad decisions is something you also see at a college campus, right? Like that's a bad decision. Maybe you shouldn't do that. And if you just make a few more good decisions than bad, then things tend to work out, right? Like it's sort of the Pareto principle, like 80, 20, rule, right? And so you don't have to make them all good, but if you can do 80, 80%, um, so that one, that was the first one I thought of. I'm like, yeah, you know, when I was young, I, every time I got myself into trouble over a long period of time, it was because I generally didn't make good decisions and I didn't just do one bad decision, right? It was like a series <laughs> of bad decisions. And so the, the, simple, the simple solution is, well, why don't you just stop making bad decisions? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's just that simple. Just don't do the yeah. bad stuff and then maybe the other stuff will be okay. So that was one of them. So that's that's the second letter or chapter in my my end of the book. Interesting. I find that very the the whole complicated answer part. Yeah. That threw me. I'm like, well, well, why is that level of attention to detail to a simplistic answer a part of this current generation? Like, what's the know. deeper meaning behind that? I, I mean, I have some I have some hypotheses, right? I I think that there's sort of this idea and again this i don't have anything to back, i don't have any science yeah. to back this this is just observation there's this idea that smart successful people always give detailed complicated answers <laughs> and and that's actually not uh, true no that's actually <laughs> not true the smartest people that i know 
in my life, whether they're in academia or not, have the ability to take something extremely complicated and distill it down to its core. So they make it simplistic and basic and easy to understand, which is exactly the opposite of what I tend to get, right? And I'm always going, no, more simple, bigger picture, bigger picture, more simple. Why are you going? And they get caught up in in the details. So um, I, I don't know exactly why, but it is something that I have continued to observe. And it is, it is, I see it in every class I teach. It doesn't matter if it's A&P, it doesn't matter if it's intro bio, it doesn't matter if it's a travel class. It is, it is a symptom of something else, why we go to the complicated. Um, So I thought, well, you know, let's, let's simplify things. And, And the book is, you know, based on that, at least my part section of the book is trying to not make things complicated and make it easy and fun uh, to read so that, you know, kind of to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Right. Right. Do you think it's like, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this. I'm like, really? (laughs) I just like almost this concept of like, I want to sound really intelligent Yes. when I give an answer so that you'll think that I am intelligent. Right. Right. Like, uh, I'm curious. I'm just, I'm like really blown away. Like, where does that come from? Is it a, just a symptom of our so- current society, yeah. social media, all this seeing what you perceive th- to be intelligence? You know, I think so. I think so. So let me give you an example. So um, I'm, I'm very interested in human performance, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a thing. It's part of a hobby. It's part, I have a degree in it. Um, I'm a physiologist, so I'm just interested in human systems. And let's use an example of, you know, social media and internet, YouTube, okay, whatever the platform is. And take training, for instance, right? It seems to me that when I surf, and I'm, I'm usually looking, sometimes I'm looking to learn stuff, and sometimes I'm just looking to understand, like, what, what are people actually trying to sell or give information Mm -hmm. and it seems like some of the sites that seem like they're giving this nuancey really complicated way of doing something because you know some strange exercise that nobody has access to (laughs) right that nobody that nobody but you know an olympic gymnast can do yeah right but that's that's the missing key to progress right like that is the thing that's progress um Let's make it even so I actually have the last chapter in the book is how to get strong, which is doesn't really fit last chapter in my section, it doesn't really fit um, my section, but it is sort of a passion of mine, right. Mm -hmm. And it is the most simplistic thing you can possibly do. It's not actually that complicated, right. And so, but 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 if you go on the internet, right, it's, oh, you got to do band work, speed work, West Side method, complicated, yeah. mad cow, you name it, right? Like, yeah. it's actually not that complicated for most people. Like, we're not talking about an Olympic caliber athlete here. We're talking about the general population. And so it's a handful of exercises done over time to progression, mm-hmm. getting, you know, adding more weight over time, obviously taking in a certain number of calories, doing it with good form over the largest range of motion with the biggest total number of muscle groups that you can add. It's actually that simple. 
It is. Right. It's, <laughs> it's not more complicated than that. But and yet and yet everybody wants to make it more complicated because they're like, well, look at said famous person. OK, well, said famous person is a genetic anomaly. Right. Like mm -hmm. you can't look at said famous person because anything will make them grow. And they're doing complicated stuff because the easy stuff they did, you know, 15, yeah. 20 years ago. Right. right. And so they went through that phase. So there's an example. Right. And so it's not just on the academic side. It's like everywhere. Let's yeah. let's make it more complicated than it needs to be. And so oftentimes, again, when I'm having conversations with colleagues or, or students or, or just anybody, friends, I, I, I like to simplify things and speak a sort of more common language so that I'm not confusing anybody because I yeah. want to communicate. Right. Big words, complicated details, they have their place. Sure. But for most of what we do, most of the day, unless you're in a very technical field, right, you're not doing that. So for when, for instance, when I was doing just pure research, and you would understand this, you're speaking with experts all day long. Of course. Uh, okay, now, you know, we all have this huge vocabulary, we have this deep, deep understanding. Well, you don't need to speak in basics to, you know, world-class experts. You can have a different conversation, but that's because we all understand the basics and we're all on the same page, right? But right. we're pushing the boundaries of said field. Yeah. But if you're, if you're not pushing the boundaries and you're in a class or you're learning something for the first time, it, again, there's no reason to go in depth. Again, the smartest people I know are the people that have this ability to simplify everything. And they also tend to be some of the best teachers, right? whether, they, whether they're officially teachers or not, but they, they're just yeah. really, really good at it. It's really amazing. It's kind of like, um, and I've been in health and wellness for over 20 years. It's like, okay, we're kind of basically talking about stimulus here. Yes. And a response to the stimulus recovery. That's right. Overload, specific, specific, specific adaptations to impose demands. Yes. It's really not that hard. No. But then it did you, you know, but it's like, oh, let's talk about the mitochondrial, you know, this the cell and all this sliding filament theory. And stuff. right. You don't really need to really discuss that too much for right. a lay person. Like why? that's right. And, and it's interesting. It and is, I, you know, yeah. I like hearing that, but the, but the, you know, the lay person can get caught in the weeds and start, you know, they're, they're missing the forest for the trees. And yeah. so again, whether it's fitness, whether it's how to be a successful entrepreneur, whether it's yeah. how to be a good student, right. Whether it's weight loss. I mean, a lot of it comes back to really basic core concepts that are applied appropriately over a period of time right yeah. and with tweaks here and there and i and i think you know part of it is you know a lot and i tell my students all the time when they'll say well i saw such and such on the internet and i said well <laughs> that's not real that always well, sounds bad i saw such and such on the internet. how do you know it's not real martino so Come my on. students call me martino right yeah they're like well I don't know because I spent the last 25 years of my life doing this and I'm telling you that it's wrong. I mean, other than the fact that I've been doing it for 25 years and I'm not trying to put that student down, but I'm trying to say, you need to be, you need to discriminate more about what is seeing it is one thing, 
believing it is a completely different thing. What evidence do you have? And if you don't know, you need to try to be able to figure out where to go to reliable sources. And when you do that, you find out that they all have commonalities, right? Mm. Like, oh, the, the ones that are reliable tend to do the same things, which is somewhat boring. I mean, I, I guess from mm. a marketing point of view, isn't very interesting or exciting, right? Right. Tell and so, about, yeah, yeah go ahead. I was thinking about like, I think I, I was looking back through just a few things. And are you doing some work on behavioral inhibition? I think I saw that. Yes. Can, yeah, can you so, explain that a little bit and then your work in it? Yeah. So we, I collaborate. So Justin is one of my co-authors on this book is also a research collaborator of mine, uh, along with um, Dan Miller, who's the chair of neuroscience at Carthage, and then a, a colleague of mine, Denise Cook-Schneider. And then we have two colleagues, at, one at Syracuse, um, Rick Servatius, and then one at Northern Colorado, um, Todd Allen. Anyway, Behavioral inhibition is this, uh, this trait that 33% of the population are born with. So we think it's genetic. We don't know for certain, but it, it sort of comes out that every time we test this, not just in our hands, but in other labs' hands, about 33% of the people show up. So you, you figure this out via a survey, okay? And so we, we studied this uh, in college-age students, so 18 to 22-year-olds. And what is it about behavioral inhibition that's interesting? Well, people that are behaviorally inhibited tend to learn, uh, uh, learn more quickly when they encounter aversive stimuli, right? In other words, when something negative happens to them, they learn that thing, right? Let's say they get a shock. Yeah. To use a simple example, okay. they learn how they got the shock very, very quickly, maybe more quickly than people that don't have this characteristic. And the, but that's part of it. So that's actually not a bad thing. The bad part of it is they seem to be able to hold on to this. In other words, it is hard for them to just sort of get a shock and then, you know, say, ow, yeah. like a normal person would normal or we quote unquote normal. And yeah. then sort of move on. You get on with your day. You say, I got a shock, right? Yeah. They, they tend to, to sort of hyper-focus on this. So how did we get into this? Our colleague, Rick Servatius, who's now at Syracuse, is working uh, with the United States military. And the United States military is extremely interested in this because when they get recruits, they want to make sure that they can place that person in the appropriate job so that they can maximize the skill set, right? And so you can imagine if you're if you have people that are coming in, young people that have this trait, if it's if it's a negative trait, you might not want to put them in combat. So why? Maybe you do. So people that are behaviorally inhibited tend to be more likely to be anxious more likely to be depressed, and they're more likely to have PTSD, hmm. post-traumatic stress syndrome. So there's negatives and positives to these people, right? So the positive, let's start with that. Let's say you take one of these people, you don't know they have this, this trait, and you put them in a war zone, okay? They're likely to learn very, very quickly the kinds of actions that will hurt them or not hurt them which is actually good. It keeps right. you alive, right? 
Correct. And so as long as you've got them in that war zone, they're fantastic because they will not forget. They learn very, very quickly. The problem is, and might be, is that when you pull them out of that war zone, hypothetically, that they still cannot forget it. And that's where, that's where they start having problems when they try to reintegrate. So that's what the military was interested in. And so our colleague, he was studying um, 18 to 22 year old, give or take uh, people in the military. And then the students that we study are the same age are sort of the controls. But as we started to do this, we started to realize, ooh, this is really interesting in these college age students. And it's about the same. We get about 33% of our students are behaviorally inhibited. Okay, so they have this characteristic. Now, these behaviorally inhibited people are not introverts, but they tend to, sh they tend to shy away from things that are negative because they learn it very, very quickly. So they learn quickly, but they can't seem to shut it off. Mm. So here's what we did. We actually published a study just recently. And we only ended up studying females. We actually studied males and females, okay? So we only published the female data because in higher ed now, about 60% of college age people uh, are, are female. And yeah. so we have neuroscience, we have biology, we have psychology are becoming primarily female. So most of our participants were female. So we didn't have enough data to publish on the male. So we said, well, this is interesting. Females are understudied, okay? They, we, we have not studied females enough because it's, it's more complicated to study a female because you have to have things like the menstrual cycle and, and there are other complicated. So mm -hmm. forever, at least in the physiology side, it's just been easier to study males, male rats, male hamsters, because you don't have to deal with the menstrual cycle. Yeah. When we studied them and we exposed them to carbon dioxide, so carbon dioxide at 7% is, mm -hmm. is a pretty aversive stimuli. It won't kill you, but it makes you breathe heavy, okay? Because right. it can be toxic. It won't, 7%. And so it will double or increase your breathing rate. And so we wanted to see what would happen to people that had this trait versus not have this trait, to blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate. And we compared them to the non-BI people they were pretty much the same. There were some trends. So we would have, we would have predicted, well, BI people are going to have a higher blood pressure when they're exposed to CO2 or afterwards, right? They're going to have a higher heart rate. Their breathing yeah. rate's going to go up. None of that happened. And this is the beauty of science, right? You come in with a hypothesis and you're like, well, of course this is going to happen. And then you actually test it and you're like, oh no, no, that didn't turn out the way we wanted it. Well, not that right. we wanted it, but it's the way we thought. Right. Here's the interesting part. So that that simple analysis. So here's an exception to the rule when we were talking about the book. That simple analysis didn't work. So we started with the simple stuff. So then we took the analysis one step deeper and we looked at heart rate variability. Yeah. And that and you probably know this, mm -hmm. but for your audience, the heart rate variability is essentially an indicator of how turned on the stress response is or is not, right? There's these, two, there's these two halves of what's called the autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic is part of the stress response. So I'm awake, you're awake right now, we're sympathetic dominant. And the parasympathetic, this rest and digest system is lower. 
And then when you go into the evening and sleep, you sort of shift the balance. Okay, heart rate variability tells you how turned on your sympathetic nervous system is. Okay, it's a more, it's a more complicated analysis that basically looks at an EKG and breaks down how, how regularly that heartbeat, that rhythm shows up. So if somebody has a low variability, right, that is an indicator of stress because think about it. When you're sitting here, right, you and I are relaxed, mm -hmm. assuming we're relaxed. There's no need to be super efficient with your heart. You know, the beat is a little longer. The beat is a little shorter. There's no stress. It doesn't really matter. You're, you have a lot of capacity. But as you start moving, you, you stand up. That variability becomes decreased. You start to walk. That variability becomes decreased. You start to run, right? You start to run. And the heart, the body is starting to become more efficient. So the variability has to decrease as the sympathetic system Correct. gets turned on, right? And so that means that the parasympathetic is usually coming down and one is coming up. So for elite athletes, you can actually use this, right? You can say that you, you can look at them in their normal state and they're parasympathetic dominant. They're actually dominant in the other direction. So when they're off, they're off, right? But when they're on, they're on. But people that are highly stressed, people that have BI, we hypothesized, would not would would be have a lower variability in heart rate and that's exactly what we found yeah but here's why here's why so we looked at this we did this analysis and i won't bore you with the actual um, analysis <laughs> and statistics but the big picture is that when we looked at the the bi females remember these were only females that right public at rest when we had them just sitting there breathing into a valve they weren't doing anything to them for 15 minutes. And then we compared them to the non-BI females. The parasympathetic nervous system, the one that's the rest and digest where it helps them relax, was almost completely shut off. Wow. Not on. Wow. Whereas the, the people that were non-behaviorally inhibited had some kind of output that we could, yeah. we could figure out from the analysis. So we didn't do anything. All we did was bring these females in we sat them down. They filled out a questionnaire. They all did the same thing. We hooked them up to a breathing valve for 15 minutes, and which is room air, just regular old air. Right. They're not doing anything. They're just relaxing. Somebody's sitting right next to them. The people that are behaviorally inhibited, the females, their parasympathetic nervous system, essentially the brake mechanism, right? If you think about sympathetic as a gas pedal, yep. and right, is almost off. There's no braking mechanism That's going incredible. on. But you can't pick it up in the heart rate. You can't pick it up in the breathing rate, the breathing depth. You can't pick it up in the blood pressure. It doesn't show up. So we initially thought when we did this study, like, well, we either did something wrong right. or it just isn't what we thought. Mm -hmm. And then we did this deeper analysis. Once you expose both the BI females Okay, the one that have this trait and the non-BI females to carbon dioxide, which is a stressor. It will double or triple your breathing rate. Correct. Yeah. Their response was essentially the same. So their, their sympathetic nervous system went up. 
So they have a normal sympathetic nervous system response, which is good. It's the stress response. But they have what seems to be a abnormal parasympathetic resting response. And so the braking mechanism is not working very well, at least not in our hands on our study. Yeah. And that seems to be the difference. And, and that then, you know, predisposes them <clears throat> to a bunch of things. Now, <clears throat> that's the beginning. So for us, that was sort of the big, the big beginning study. We've also done some look at cortisol levels and amylases because oh, okay. cortisol is a, is a stress hormone. Right. Uh, we haven't published those data yet, so we're still doing that analysis. So we're going to see if any of that pans out too. But I wouldn't be surprised if neither one of those um, analyses show any different because they're too gross. In other yeah. words, they're, they're, not, they're not fine and detailed enough. The resolution isn't high enough with those just like heart rate and blood pressure and breathing rate aren't. So you, then you have to do, again, going against what I'm saying in the book, now you have to go to the complicated because the simple doesn't explain it. And yeah. so this was the first study to show that there's an actual physiologic systems level difference between this, what has been considered a psychological trait. Right. And so my, one of my um, colleagues, Dan Miller, is a neuropsychologist. And then Justin Miller and I are physiologists. So we were combining the two, the three, and we're the first ones to show this that I'm aware of. So let's bring it to a level of like, let's say your students or just the general population of people. Yep. Someone who is in a relationship with someone who exhibits BI. Yeah. How can they better control or what is the intervention for them to... <laughs> have a better existence with this versus just going, I, I just can't stop having a negative association with these things over a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a really good question. I mean, so remember, I'm not a trained psychiatrist or psychologist, right. so this is just a physiologist speculating here. I think, I think that what they need to be is they need to be aware of it. Like anything else, the first step is always to be aware that yes. you like this. Yes. And, and there's a lot of behavioral and cognitive type therapies uh, that you can do, of which I'm not aware of the specifics, yeah. where you can sort of expose yourself um, in micro doses, I would imagine, I to that aversive stimuli to prove to yourself, right? So th this, is, this sort of gets beyond the scope of my expertise, but I think being aware of it, one, and then getting some sort of techniques to deal with this. I'm sure things like meditation help. Sure. I'm sure people that exercise are probably um, less like exercise in physiology. We call it the poly pill, right? It's sort of, it makes everything better. So right, if you're right. exercising, if you're eating right, I think the other thing, and this is something that we notice with our students and we don't have any data to back this up, but I noticed yeah. this is, getting plenty of sleep. I think uh, most people yeah. are sleep deprived. Correct. And because of that, they it, it exacerbates everything. So this yes. is totally exact. And then it, it sends them over the threshold. And, and I tell my students all the time in phys, I'm like, you know, if you look at the recommendations for people your age, you're supposed to be sleeping nine to 10 hours a day. And then they look at me like, 
oh, that's crazy. <laughs> like, are you crazy? <laughs> I can't sleep. I'm lucky if I get five hours of sleep. And, yeah. and then we go, and exactly that's the point. So yeah. I, I think, you know, ba- again, going ba- basic and common, stay active, have a good social network, right? Mm-hmm. Eat, eat healthy foods, like non ultra processed yeah. foods, get plenty of sleep. Right. And if you're not doing that, and I think of all of those, the most important, if I had to narrow it down to one, is getting enough sleep. Yeah. If you're not getting enough sleep, everything doesn't work well. Everything, yeah. physiologically, psychologically. So that would be my recommendation is the first thing you would check is, are you getting enough sleep? And if you're not, maybe getting three or four or five days of good sleep might yeah. be the first step. Isn't that amazing? Like I had several sleep scientists on the podcast Mm -hmm. and I just, uh, I love how prominent sleep research has become in our society now, at least more to, it really does almost alter your reality when you don't sleep well. It's just almost this mirage, this haze of existence. And yep. but then we often blame it on something else, though, which is more complicated, which goes which back is to more that complicated second. than that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is like we're looking for the comp. Well, what can I take for that, doc? Yeah, like, you got a supplement for that? And I'm yeah. like, well, yeah, it's called sleep or exercise <laughs> or stop eating, you know, bonbons yeah. all the time because they're not good for you. But, you know, in small doses, they're fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's sleep and it makes a huge difference psychologically for people. And we're so sleep deprived because I think, and hope, hopefully we've learned something uh, over the last year and a half, two years, is that getting that sleep makes everything better. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of like, there used to be a saying, again, dating myself, right? Like, I'll sleep when I die. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a bad idea. That's a very bad idea. That's a very bad idea. And if you look back, actually, about a century ago, uh, the average person in the United States was sleeping about nine hours a day. Mm-hmm. That was pretty common because there was not that much light. There was not a, like, a lot of electricity. And so when it got dark out, you, you kind of went to sleep, right? Maybe you slept <laughs> yeah. in the summer, but you didn't really have an opportunity to go out and do much. And so you kind of got to wonder if, if that's not a core issue with a mm. lot of things that we're seeing in health in general. Is this something like with, as a physiologist and things that you're stressing more of this more than ever with yeah. students? It feels like it's a huge generational issue for a lot yep. of people. Yep. And I've actually studied it. You know, I've actually studied sleep, um, in my PhD, uh, so that was something I have some expertise in. But yeah, I stress it with my students and colleagues, uh, my family, you know, when they come, I can't lose weight. Are you sleeping enough? Well, that has nothing to do with it. They, why do they never think that's an a, a, a <laughs> aspect to it? I'm like, it's like a huge aspect to it. Yeah. Well, you know, I just, I started working out a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and, and I made some progress, but I'm not making any progress anymore. I'm like, well, are you getting enough sleep? what does sleep have to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's stress, recovery, adaptation, and yes. in that recovery phase, <laughs> you need to sleep, right? Yeah. Um, again, the mental health. And so I'm very cognizant of the mental health of my students. I, I, we teach, I teach at a small liberal arts school, and I get to know all my students very personally. I mean, I see them on a daily basis. I'm uh, really concerned about their well-being yeah. physical and mental and and i'm an advisor 
And so, you know, we have deep conversations about life. And I often go to simple, you know, solutions to things. Try the simple things first. Yeah. Um, and then I always talk about, well, how much sleep are you getting? Well, I'm not getting a lot of sleep. I said, <laughs> well, I can't. I said, well, life's a sort of a lot about a lot of trade-offs, right? And I know that you can't get as much sleep as maybe you'd like, but could you get an extra hour of sleep? Maybe that might help. Like, you know, but, but then I'd have to not do these 10 different things. I'm like, well, are you really doing 10 different things? I mean, yeah, <laughs> another thing, right? We'll just do 10 different things instead of saying, well, I'll do two things really well. Yeah. Which leads into another again. So you see these types of things, young people doing this, and you have to ask yourself, well, where did they learn this? Well, you got to start, you know, with the home and friends and family like they've been they've seen this model and they think this is normal and good. Yes. And. And so they must have learned this. They didn't come up with this on their own. No. Because, <laughs> because I mean, hominid species of which we're the last kind, and, and the great apes in general, the bonobos, the gorillas, the orangutans, right? Chimpanzees are generally lazy. I mean, given our druthers, we'd want to sit around most of the time. Right. Why would we burn energy if we don't have to? So <laughs> the fact that we're pushing ourselves to the brink right, has to be a learned behavior because biologically, if we watch the great apes, they're pretty boring. Yes. And, and most humans, given their druthers, right, like unless they're hunting for food or they're doing something they need to survive, they're kind of hanging out, you know, having a good old time, which is not a bad thing. I mean, it, no. it isn't, right? It's actually a good thing. It's social because we're a social species. So, so you see these types of things, right? And you see this over and over again. And again, going back to the book, you you start to see patterns. You're like, well, can I tell you a story? And, and in the book, we try to use humorous stories about ourselves, right? So we kind of make fun of ourselves and tell these somewhat embarrassing, sometimes funny, sometimes tragic yeah. stories in a couple of pages that say, look, it's not just you that made this mistake. I've done it. Let me show you how I did it. Like, let me myself as an example to say, look, I did it too. And here was the outcome, but here's what I learned from it. And, you know, 20 years later, I'm pretty successful. I mean, I'm not rich, yeah. but I'm pretty successful. And so maybe if I had had someone tell me some of this stuff, maybe <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't know that I would have listened, but at least I made right. it faster, <laughs> right? So instead of taking a decade to figure this out, I may be like in three years, I'm like, that old dude. <laughs> Probably was right, right? And you have this kind of Mr. Miyagi yeah. thing, right? This mentorship, wax on, wax off. He must be crazy. Why does he have me waxing cars? Yeah. Well, we know how that turns out. So it'll be interesting, like if you actually, I mean, this is certainly more like science fiction, but like if you actually saw the, let's say, 30 years from now version of yourself, yeah. you met that person. And you didn't recognize that person. Yes. Because they had drains, changed so drastically. Would yes. you believe them that they were you and that they became this version of themselves? Yeah, I, that's a good question. Yeah. And I, and I, I think I would find it hard to believe. Yeah. I, but me too. And so in the letters, <laughs> no, and, but in the letters, so I, and I embed this in a couple of them, um, and maybe one or two of them, I actually uh, make a statement that only 
so in one instance, we tell a, a funny story. I tell a funny story about when I was a kid, there was a group of kids and I grew up on the East Coast, but now I live in the Midwest. I've been here for 25 years. And uh, we used to like to go play baseball, which was a thing. We'd get together, yeah. a bunch of us, take some mitts and some bats, and we go play baseball. We went to a local park, and we encountered an inebriated man, an yeah. adult. Okay. Now, by today's standards, you know, we probably would have been scared, but maybe either we were too stupid or we just <laughs> too ignorant. We thought, okay, he's just a drunk guy, right? Yeah. And and he came and, and he talked to us and he wanted to play with us. We're like, cool. Yeah, <laughs> right. we need a pitcher anyway, right? Yeah, We're yeah. like, this is a bonus. And um, he came up with, and he was really drunk, really drunk. Right. And he was playing with it, but he was a nice guy. And he came up with this pitch called the spliv. I don't know what the spliv is. He was throwing it at like 10 miles an hour. Yeah, because we were yeah. all, you know, and so I tell this story to myself and there were only six other human beings there. And right. And so I think that would be the kind of evidence that I would need. Tell me some things that only myself and like, you know, four or five other human beings on the planet would know. Right. And so I do that as sort of to make the point to my younger self, like it's really me. It's it really, really is me yeah. because nobody else would know this, right? And so it's sort of an inside joke, but that's sort of the point of that particular chapter. And it, it's to it's to show people that this is what you would have to do to convince yourself. And you'd have to tell multiple stories like this. And everybody's got them, right? Which is yeah. and it makes people think, like, yeah, you're right. I would have to do that to convince myself. You would. So different. First of all, I used to have a lot of hair. Hair's so gone. there's another aspect. There's the physical change. Yeah. Because there's certain people that say they're 21. When they're 51, they almost look unrecognizable. Yes. Through their, so you may even be dealing with a person that looks literally nothing like how you used to look like. That's correct. That's correct. Until that's correct. And so if you see me, you know, I didn't have the glasses, so mm -hmm. I can take the glasses off. I'm a little bit heavier, but not much. And yeah. I'm a little bit heavier. But the face is different. It does yeah. it does change, right? And it then does. I used to have a lot of hair, and that really changes your facial features. And so the hairstyles change. So even if I right. had all my hair, right, the, the, you know, I used to have the part in the middle and the feathering, and that's yeah. just not a thing that people do anymore. So that would have dated me right, right. to the 80s. And so, yeah, so you'd have to convince yourself in multiple ways and, and, you know, they've, they've had movies where they sort of do this and they, they, you know, they, they sort of um, look into this kind of idea of somebody coming back and yeah. each time you kind of have to convince yourself that you're you, I yeah. don't believe you. Well, it's really me. And so we, I, we kind of use some of that. I do it in one or two of my letters to myself. So that's sort of the point of it. Man, I, this is, I mean, I think this is really awesome stuff. I'm really, uh, really happy we had some time to chat about this stuff the yeah, book so sounds amazing and just letters to yourself i mean what a good exercise to do is yeah. to, i think it'd be good for anybody just to write what would you tell yes. yourself all those years ago yeah. about how things are you know will work out or you know hey avoid this do it man <laughs> like <laughs> yeah exactly right? avoid this man don't do it it's don't do it. it it's bad for you it's gonna lead to like a decade of terrible stuff for you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right and it was fun and it was cathartic and we yeah. wrote it and we and it's short and we hope that it's helpful to people 
Uh, it was great for us. I mean, we, we strengthened our bonds as friends and as colleagues doing it and, uh, you know, make a positive dent in the world. And that's what we were trying to do. So hopefully people will enjoy it. Well, awesome. Well, please, uh, Paul, let everybody know how they can get the book, sure. where it is, the whole deal. You know. Yeah. So um, you can either go to Amazon, which is probably the easiest, or uh, Barnes and Noble, um, and just you type in letters to our younger selves, colon, a combat manual for mindful living. Uh, there's a Kindle version. Uh, there's a paperback version. We also have a Facebook page that is also labeled Letters to Our Younger Selves. We just started doing some um, non-video podcasts where we're starting to explore and talk about each of these letters. Uh, we're doing that on a weekly basis. So if people want to sort of check it out and hear us talk about it, Justin and I have been doing some of it. Nate will come in later. That would be cool. And without, you know, kind of hearing about our thoughts on each of the chapters, that'd be great. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, happy to, you know, interact with people. And um, again, hopefully that it, it's helpful and we're, we're making a positive dent in the universe. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Really do. Thank you very much. I really yeah. appreciate Have it. Have a Great wonderful day. rest of your day. Yeah, you do the same. All right.